John 5. Don't sleep with your head facing north. If you live in Japan. Don't sleep with your head facing west. If you live in Africa. If you get a brand new pair of shoes in Britain, don't put them on the table. You got an itchy right hand, you may be coming into some money soon. Live in Iceland, then don't do your knitting outdoors. Otherwise, the temperatures will stay cold. You're better off not to cut your hair or your nails on Tuesdays or Thursdays or Saturdays if you live in India. If you want to stay young, carry an acorn in your pocket. If you want good luck all year long in Spain, then eat 12 grapes at midnight on New Year's Day. Is Pastor Rick having a stroke? What's happening here? Don't wear red during a thunderstorm in the Philippines. Don't enter a room with your left foot in Spain. Don't open an umbrella indoors. Avoid broken mirrors. Don't let a black cat pass over your path. Never walk under a ladder. And if you've done any of these things and you haven't suffered any consequences, then knock on wood. Maybe cross your fingers. Maybe find a penny and pick it up. Thank your lucky stars. Rub a rabbit's foot. If you have experienced some bad luck, then hold on because it always comes in threes. Every culture has its superstitions. Irrational beliefs, which we believe, tell us something about what the future will bring. And as unpleasant as some of them might sound, they provide a perceived benefit. It gives us a sense of control in a certain sense, doesn't it? Uh, if I don't do this, if I avoid that, if I do that, well, then maybe I can affect fate or I can affect the outcome. On the other hand, a superstitious person can really find themselves enslaved to all these rules and restrictions and regulations and even coming to the level of paranoia, perhaps. Of course, to have such superstitions is to have a distorted view of God of who God is and how favor is attained and how and where his power is exercised. So in our passage this morning, we find Jesus engaged with two types of people, two very different types of people who suffer from very uh, different misconceptions as to who God is. Both exchanges we're going to see in John 5 reveal misguided notions about God's will and God's character and God's purpose and God's favor and God's work. And we're going to see some distinction between these two groups, but we're also going to see some overlap. We're also going to see that the two types of people we're going to meet in our passage, uh, their misconceptions about God have the same corrective, the same solution. And that is to recognize that Jesus Christ is the locus of God's work on earth, so that it is through faith in him that one experiences both the power and favor of God. So to understand that conception of God solves both of the problems we're going to see in our passage. Well, let's meet the first of these in John chapter 5, verse 1 through 9. It says, After this, remember the healing of the official son from last week. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, unnamed feast. We don't know what it is. This is the only feast in John where we don't know what feast it was. There was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. And now your translation in verse 4 may have uh, an additional phrase in there. 
some of your translations might skip right from verse 3 to verse 5. It seems as if the manuscript evidence bears this out, that at one point there was a marginal note about what was happening in this passage, and at some point in the copying process of manuscript, that note worked its way into the text, and it really doesn't belong there. And uh, so in verse 4, it talks about this belief that the reason the lame were there is because an angel would come and stir up the water, and whoever went down first would be healed. And so you might have that in your translation. You might have it as a note. Verse 5, One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Archaeological excavations in the northeastern quarter of Jerusalem have uncovered the remains of this very pool. Not a pool as we would think of a pool. Uh, This is a pool about the size of a football field. And it says in our text that it was uh, surrounded by five roofed colonnades. And so if you could picture uh, pillars in a roofed area along the perimeter of these pools, there's twin pools, and then there's another colonnade between the two dividing them. And so you have these two massive pools, you have roofed colonnades, and you could imagine that the shelter there provided would be an attraction for the uh, homeless, for beggars. But there's another reason why they might gather there under those roofed colonnades, and that's because there was a superstition. There was a folk legend, which was at certain seasons, the water in these pools would get stirred up. Now, it's probably just a natural occurrence, probably an underground spring or something like this. It caused the waters to get disturbed. And so the the lore was, get down as soon as you can, and whoever's in the water first is going to be healed from all their diseases. Now, this is a pretty sad, sad sight. Think about those who are sick, infirm, homeless, those who maybe even are paralyzed to a certain degree. The water stirred up, starts bubbling, and they're racing and clamoring and climbing over one another to get into the water, hoping to be healed. This superstition provided enough hope for healing that the blind and the injured and so on would just gather there day by day. The paralyzed would have others carry them. They would have their bed, and it would act like a stretcher, and they would just be carried there and and placed next to the water, uh, hoping that maybe they could just kind of roll in when the water was stirred. According to John, on this particular day, there was a man, an invalid, who had suffered from his condition for 38 years, almost four decades. We learn from the passage that not only was he an invalid, perhaps paralyzed, but he didn't have any close friends. He didn't have any family. He says when Jesus speaks to him, I don't have anybody. I don't have anybody to help me. I don't have anybody to put me into the water when it's stirred. But perhaps even more sad than that, as we're going to see, is that this individual, not only was he suffering in life, but his hope was misplaced because he had serious spiritual confusion as to who God was and how he operates. He bought into the popular folklore that the way to attain healing from God was simply to be in the right place at the right time. God would send an angel, stir up the water at a random time, and whoever just happens to get into the water would be the beneficiary of God's power. That is a serious misconception as to who God is and how God operates. It's always sad to hear someone's misconceptions about God, but it's far 
more sad to hear someone's misconceptions about God when it's somebody who is in serious need. Somebody who's desperate and somebody who has their hopes placed in somewhere that's always going to disappoint. And that was the case of this man. Now just think for a moment about the conception of God that this poor, paralyzed man must have had. Be sitting day after day after day next to this pool, hoping for the stirring of the water. First of all, we see that as he's sitting alongside the pool with his hopes in this superstition, that such superstition sees God working where he is not. It sees God working where he is not. There were healing shrines throughout the area in the first century, throughout the ancient world. And uh, many of them were erected to worship pagan gods, known for the healing powers. And so what this man was doing at this pool, like the other Jews, were simply uh, appropriating pagan practices and kind of wrapping them up into, in, in Judaism. And uh, so they had their own Jewish folklore that they would attach to the pagan myth about this water being stirred up and so on. And so although the superstition had attributed the stirring of the water to an angel, the fact of the matter is that's not what's happening here at all superstition. So this man's hopes were misplaced and his conception of God was distorted. And if he wanted to see God work, the way to see God work was not to look at the pool. That's not where God was operating. What he's going to learn in a moment, as we're going to see, is he's going to have to learn to take his eyes off of this superstition and off of this pool. And he's going to have to learn to look to Christ and understand that the locus of God's work on earth is centered in his son. So such superstition sees God working where he is not. Next, such superstition separates God's power from God's person. And this, I think, is the saddest aspect of this story. Think again about this particular superstition and what it implies about God and his character. According to this superstition, an angel comes down at a random time, certain seasons, stirs up the water, imparting to it some type of healing properties, and upon the stirring, you can imagine the scene. I mean, the blind the lame, the sick, paralyzed. The water stirs up, and imagine what happens in that moment. Men and women climbing over one another, pushing one another out of the way, hobbled, you know, trying to get down into the water before the other, desperation, fighting off one another. The supposed reward for such behavior was healing from God. When I think about this picture, it almost... What came to mind for me was almost like a, a king, maybe traveling through masses of the sick and poor and destitute, and just throwing out one piece of bread out the window. Well, what's going to happen? The masses clamor, and they fight one another to get just that morsel that, that God apparently was kind enough to toss out for whoever happened to get there first to get it. That's not the God of Scripture. The so-called God behind this superstition Again, not the God of Scripture. What this superstition has done is separate God's person from God's power. It thinks of God's power as impersonal, undirected, a force to be uh, one, like one wins the lottery. There's no relationship here, just exchange. For some, such a God is actually favorable. For some, would actually prefer such a God. An impersonal God who's just kind of like a vending machine so that there's no relationship there and there's no holiness there and there's no morality there. Uh, there's, there's no intimacy there. For some, that's ideal. 
If I just do this certain thing at a certain time, well, then I can receive benefit from this God, and, uh, and we're good. But that's not the God of Scripture. Some are far more comfortable with the idea of a divine power which can be accessed apart from relationship. These are those who prefer ceremony and ritual and keeping of rules, vain, ritualistic, programmatic religion or superstition. And it forgets that our God is what? Relational. We relate to him as children relate to a father. That's the God of Scripture. He's not cold. He's not distant. He's not an unloving entity whose power is unlocked by just the right behavior at just the right time. But that was the God of this man. A cure for anxiety in this life. And that's what superstition is. It's really a cure for anxiety, an illegitimate cure for anxiety. I don't know what life will bring, so if I perform this practice or I'm sure to avoid this thing, well, then maybe I can have some control over over the outcome. We're talking about Kayla having her baby. How many superstitions have you heard surrounding birth and pregnancy? Don't do this or this will happen to your child. Don't do this or you have this type of labor and so on. What is that? Well, it's that fear of the unknown and that anxiety uh, leading up to the birthing process. And so maybe our superstitions give us a sense that we are in control and it quells our anxiety somewhat. The cure for anxiety, however, is not to rely upon our own faithfulness, obeying just the right way at just the right time to appease the divine powers. Uh, That's not it at all. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on is not life more than food and body more than clothing. Then he said, look to the birds. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your, what does it say, heavenly father feeds them. The cure for anxiety is to recognize that our God is a relational God and that we relate to him as a child relates to a father, which means love. He says, are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? It's futile. Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Understand, this is a cure for anxiety entirely dependent upon our understanding of the character of God as a loving Heavenly Father who relates to us in the context of loving relationship. Continues, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all those things, and your Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Don't worry about tomorrow. Trust God today. This is a daily faith. That's why the Lord's Prayer is a daily prayer. Give us this day our daily bread and so on. So this is a a daily relationship where we wake up every day saying, God is my Heavenly Father, and He loves me, and He cares for me, and my uh, life is in His hands. And that, then, is the cure for anxiety. And so, relationship. The man at the side of the well seeking to be healed, his concept of God was one where the water stirs up, just whoever happens to to plop themselves in that water is going to receive some semblance of mercy from this cold, distant God. That's not the God of Scripture, even though the man was likely a Jew. 
And so not only was this man seeing God at work where he wasn't, but he was also seeing God as impersonal and uncaring. Both these misconceptions would soon be challenged when Jesus comes on the scene. And so such superstition sees God working where he isn't, separates God's power from God's person. And next of all, such superstition placed the man's fate in his own hands. Now, this is the irony of this whole thing. This man's theology, his understanding of fate and and destiny and, and so on, how to attain this healing, it was all dependent upon his ability to get himself into the water when he, of all people, was completely unable to get himself into the water. This is the case with all superstition. It's born out of our desire to have some sort of control, the irony being that ultimately we don't have that kind of control. If I do this or that or don't do this or don't do that, then I can have some control over the outcome. And these are really just evidence that we feel hopelessly adrift upon the waves of fate, and we're looking for some way uh, to direct the waters. It makes us feel better doing something, right? makes us feel better that we're doing something, that we have some control. Even those who believe in God can be guilty of this. We're not content to leave things in God's hands. We alter our faith to include things that we must do. We add superstition to our Christianity. We must pray certain rote prayers. We must say certain specific phrases when we pray. We must pray a certain number of times. Uh, we must pray a certain number of times while assuming a certain posture, uh, at uh, maybe a certain time of the day, maybe while facing a certain direction, maybe while clutching a certain object. Uh, we must give a certain amount of money. We must declare a certain mantra. We must, give a, uh, must confess at certain frequencies. Uh, we can all be guilty. And we're going to see that this spills over into something else from superstition to something we're going to call legalism. And we're going to see the connection to that in just a second. But we can all be guilty of such things. Really what it is is saying that I want to take some of what is in God's sphere of responsibility and and bring it into mine so that I can have a sense of control. When Jesus introduced the model prayer, he prefaced it this way. When you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. If I just say enough things... If I just repeat enough phrases, uh, then I'll be heard. This is my performance. This is my ability. But then Jesus says, don't be like them. For your what? Father knows what you need before you ask him. Again, the solution there is to recognize that God's our Heavenly Father, and we relate to him in the context of intimate relationship. So, this man had placed his hopes in his own ability, which he didn't have, to make it to the waters where God was not working, to receive healing by God's power, which was divorced by any sense, uh, from any sense of God's personal mercy or compassion. A sad state indeed. And so we're seeing a desperate man with misplaced hope and a distorted understanding of who God is and how he operates. Well, that's all about to change in verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, you want to be healed? A rhetorical question, if there ever was one. You read commentators on this, and they're trying to figure out why he asks, do you want to be healed? And I don't know. Sometimes I think commentators just have a quota, and they need to fill pages, right? Uh, Why is Jesus saying, do you want to be healed? Oh, is he trying to evoke faith from this man, and and so on? He just wants him to understand that the power of healing uh, rests and resides in Jesus, right? 
I mean, if you are parched and thirsty and I come to you and say, would you like a drink? You're not going to look at me and go, oh, what are you, stupid? Of course I want a drink. No, I'm telling you, I have the ability. I have the means. I can provide this for you. So would you like a drink? This is Jesus is saying, would you like to be healed? In other words, take your eyes off the water, look away from the pool, and look at me. I have the ability to heal you. That's what's happening here. And he responds, I don't have anybody to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And this is a theme we see throughout the Gospel of John, that Jesus says something, and the person he says it to misunderstands or takes him uh, very literally, doesn't understand uh, uh, what he's implying. He says, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, going down, another steps before me. And so, Jesus would have this man realize that the power of God is not in the water, but it's in him. Jesus would have him realize that God isn't working in the pool, but that is Jesus who's carrying out God's work. Uh, Jesus would have him take up his misplaced hope and place it in him instead. And so while this man is waiting for his cold, impersonal, distant God to just potentially stir up the water so that he might be lucky enough to stumble into it and to be healed, Jesus, who the Bible says is the entire Godhead bodily, comes walking in and illustrates for this man that God is near and God is personal and God is compassionate, and God is caring, and God would heal you. This is Jesus of whom Paul wrote, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So what do we learn from the incarnation of Jesus? What is God like? And you say, oh, the God of the Old Testament versus the God of the New Testament. There's one God, and if you want to know the perfect image, the perfect representation of God's character, then where do you look? To Jesus. You look to Jesus. You look at his character. You look at his earthly ministry. And so, uh, compassion, gentleness, meekness, forgiveness, justice. This is God. And so, the man at the poolside who's waiting for his cold, distant, impersonal God is going to come into contact with the true God of Scripture uh, manifest in the incarnation of Jesus. And so, Jesus would have this man realize that God is compassionate and merciful and personal. He cares for the state of this man, and he would heal him. He would have him realize that God is at work, not there, but in the ministry of Jesus. He would have him realize that he needs a healing which is entirely out of his hands, entirely beyond his ability, but fully within the ability and, uh, of Jesus, and, and the fact that Christ has the desire also to heal him. And you say, well, you see where this is going. The man's going to be healed. Uh And you say, well, why didn't Jesus just heal everybody there? And Jesus could have healed everybody there. But ultimately what's happening here is Jesus is giving a foretaste of a kingdom to come. He's illustrating the fact that he has all the power of God to heal and to eradicate the curse of sin. He has the power and ability to roll back the curse of sin so that all sickness and all disease one day yet future could be eliminated. So now the man doesn't take Jesus question as an offer. And he just responds, I don't have anyone to put me into the pool. And when I try to go down, somebody else uh, steps in front of me. That's sad. That's sad. This is the response of, see, uh, of someone who sees themselves as a victim, right? If it just wasn't these other people who would beat me to it, if I just had somebody who could put me down, then I could have what I wanted. That's often the posture of those who don't believe in God. Instead of seeing purpose and meaning behind difficulties, they see themselves as a continual victim, the victim of other people, and that's what's happening here. Well, 
in Jesus. It's remarkable that the man says, I have no one. When here's Jesus really saying to this man, you do have someone, and it's me. So Jesus responds in verse 8, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. With that, he's healed. Jesus has mercy, cures him of his four-decade-long condition. Now, whether this man believes in Jesus for salvation, we don't really know. It doesn't really seem like it at this point, based upon a conversation that happens later. But one thing we do know is that Jesus gave this man and all who witnessed it a lesson in who God is and where God is working and how God's power is manifest, not in the inanimate healing pool, but in Christ. And so he really corrects his misconceptions about God. And so God was present that day in the person of Christ, walking in the midst. And so all that Jesus did was in accord with the will of God. And as we're going to see in a moment, he's going to say, where the Father's working, I'm working. Where I'm working, the Father's working. Faith or hope was not to be directed superstitiously toward an idol or an icon or a talisman or an object or a pool, but towards God's Son. That's the lesson. So, that's it. But we started out by saying there's two groups of people here. You have the uh, lame man who's superstitious, but now we're going to have some other people enter into uh, the scene. And to understand exactly how these two people or these two groups of people uh, overlap or why they're presented to us in the same story may be a little bit difficult, but I think we can see some, some correlation here in a moment. And so there are two different exchanges happening here, but both suffer from serious misconceptions about who God is. And so now look in verse 9. It says there in the latter part, now that day was the Sabbath. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Why do I say, uh-oh? Because Jesus has just done a work on the Sabbath, and he has compelled this man to do a work on the Sabbath. What work did the man do? Well, he told him to take up his bed and walk. If you're not very familiar with Christianity, you're not very familiar with the Bible here this morning, and you say, well, what do you mean that's a problem? Take up your bed and walk. I mean, the guy just got healed after four decades of being sick, and why is it a big deal to take up his bed and walk? And we would say with you, exactly, right? But there is a group of people there who witness this, uh, who see this as a serious infraction. So, now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. Oh, brother. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And so, you know, a little bit of blame shifting there. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Now, Jesus told them, take up your bed and walk. It would have been a a roll of of hay, straw, in some type of fabric. It could be rolled up, put on the arm, put under the arm and carried. Amazingly, the Jews here know that this man has been healed. They know that he has been healed after four decades of, of ailment. What would you do in such a situation? I mean, I don't care, even if you don't know the person, but just to know that they have been cured, I mean, you are probably going to rejoice with this person. You're going to celebrate with this person. Like, this is awesome. This is good news. 
But that's not the response of these Jews. And we're going to see why in a moment. They're fixated. Even enraged on the fact that he dares to carry his bed on the Sabbath. Why? Because unlike the man who was healed, who was superstitious, these men were suffering from a different sort of religious problem. They are legalists. You may be surprised to learn that the superstitious and the legalistic have some things in common where their concept of God is concerned. Come back tonight, we're going to have a conversation together about superstition and legalism. The Jews in Jesus' day had largely become heartless and superficial and authoritarian. They were more concerned about the letter of the law than the spirit of the law. They enforced man-made regulations with zeal while neglecting mercy and compassion. And this is a continual theme in Jesus' interaction with the Jews in the Gospels. Whereas God gave commands in the Old Testament to guide and protect and bless and maintain distinction between his people and the nations around them, Judaism in the time of Jesus had hollowed out the heart of the law and simply emphasized the commandments as the things to be done in order to stave off God's disapproval. What a sad, miserable religion. The Sabbath day, which was given by God as a gift to mankind, was perverted by the Jews into an onerous burden. Whereas it was designed by God to bring a needed time of rest and reflection and worship, it had become a meticulously regulated drudgery, which was policed without mercy. Can you imagine the person who buys into that system? And they're just constantly thinking, oh no, did I violate the Sabbath? Oh no, was that too much work? There's 39 types of work which were recorded by the Jews in the Mishnah that were forbidden on the Sabbath. And these are meant to be categories of work from which you can extrapolate extrapolate all other kinds of restrictions. So here it is. The main classes of work are 40, save one, 39. Sewing, don't do any sewing, that's planting. Plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, cleansing crops, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, washing or beating or dyeing it, spinning, weaving, making two loops. You can make one loop, but not two, that'd be work. Weaving two threads. Again, you could weave one thread, but not two, that would be work. Separating two threads, tying a knot, loosening a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing in order to sew two stitches, hunting a gazelle, seemed kind of random in there, isn't it? Uh, slaughtering or flaying or salting it or curing its skin, scraping it or cutting it up, writing two letters, erasing in order to write two letters, building, pulling down, putting out a fire, lighting a fire, striking with a hammer, and taking out anything from one domain to another. That is, don't carry anything. Well, there you go. And those are all meant to be categories from which we can make other applications to just about anything else, to the point where there was even debate as to whether or not if you were to spit on the ground and then move the spit around with your foot, whether you were tilling the soil. And there's always workarounds. The legalists always have workarounds for themselves, right? Rules for everybody else, workarounds for me. And so uh, the idea being you could only travel a certain distance from your home, maybe it's a thousand yards. And so what they could do, though, is if they would tie a rope to the edge of their property, which is another 1,000 yards, well, it was as if they were extending their property the 1,000 yards, and then they could walk even further. Again, always loopholes for the legalist. There's countless illustrations of the absurd nitpicking that the Jewish leaders went through, determining who had and who had not violated the Sabbath. This would be absolutely laughable if it wasn't so tragic, because there were men and women who revered the Pharisees as the religious leaders and so tried to obey these things. You wonder why Jesus came and said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
because these were so overburdened with such regulations. Jesus summed up the proper view of the Sabbath in Mark 2. He said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The way the legalistic Jews dealt with the Sabbath seemed a lot like superstition. If I write down one letter, I'll be okay, but if I write down two letters, the wrath of God. I'll face, uh, if I sew one stitch, I'm okay. If I sew two stitches, however, judgment. You can see how legalism and superstition overlap. So here in our text, this man has been delivered from his illness, 38 years. Immediate response from the Jews, not rejoicing, uh, not celebrating mercy, but they're enraged. They're determined to get to the bottom of who told this man he could do that. Who has circumvented uh, our rules and told this man that he had this kind of liberty? And so, verse 14, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So as I say, we don't know that this man came to believe for salvation's sake. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. In the same context a little bit later, Jesus is going to talk about he as the Son of Man returning in judgment later. And I think what he's doing is saying, okay, you've been healed temporally, you've been healed physically, and and now you need to put your mind on your soul. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. What do you do with this? You, You know, kind of telling on Jesus at this point. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Again, for the remainder of our time here, let's, let's just think about some of the overlap between superstition and legalism. This is very relevant for some of you and not relevant for, for, for some, some others of you. There are many of you who have experienced legalistic religion. There are many of you who have come out of legalistic religion, and this is going to resonate with you, and others might not know what I'm talking about, and you're going to tune out. But there's some overlap between superstition and legalism. First of all, we said that the superstitious separated God's power from his personhood. Remember, the lame man perceived God's power working in the pool, divorced from any personal, relational compassion on God's part. The God of the, of the, of the lame man was cold and impersonal. The legalist's concept of God is also cold and impersonal. I mean, the evidence is right here. The man's been healed after 38 years. No rejoicing, no compassion. Who told you you could carry your bed? To think that there's a man who's clearly received mercy from Jesus and now immediately finds himself judged by the religious class. What a statement on the divide between Jesus and the legalistic Jews of his day. So the legalist divorces God's character of mercy and compassion from his commandments. You got to keep the rules, keep the commands. Well, what about God's long-suffering mercy? What about God being sympathetic to our weaknesses and our inability? No, you got to keep the letter of the law separates God's commands from God's person. The legalist concept of God was a cold and personal God who begrudgingly showed mercy and did so apart from relationship. The superstitious man's concept of God was a cold and personal God who begrudgingly showed mercy and did so apart from relationship. Next, we also saw that the superstitious lame man had bought into an understanding of fate which placed the onus on him to do something for himself that he was utterly incapable of doing. Even even if he could get into the water, the healing was a myth, but uh, frankly, he's paralyzed and he has no ability to get down in the water. 
In the same way, the legalist loves rules and commandments because it appeals to his sense of self-righteousness as if he can attain righteousness on his own, when in reality he's completely unable. He feels as if he's doing something to contribute to his own righteousness or his own acceptance by God, his own favor in the eyes of God. In reality, all of his rulemaking and commandment-keeping isn't contributing one iota to his personal righteousness or his acceptance by God. If you're a Christian this morning, you are accepted in the beloved. You are accepted in Christ. That is, the favor and honor and position that is due Christ is now yours. Your acceptance has nothing to do with your worthiness. It all has to do with His worthiness. And so you're in relationship with the Father because of Jesus, not because of your goodness or your ability. The legalist isn't comfortable with that. They're not comfortable with grace. And so I have to do something so that I can be confident that I have earned or attained this relationship with God through my own performance. While in reality, they really have no ability to attain or maintain that relationship apart from Christ. So, next of all, we saw that the superstitious man was misguided as to his understanding as to where God was working. The lame man lay under those covered colonnades, those porticos, day in and day, day out, convinced that God was working in the pool. He wasn't. Superstition. The legalist, on the other hand, his problem is not seeing God working where he isn't. The problem with the legalist is that he doesn't see God working where he is working. Why? Because the legalist has his own system or his own tribe or his own circle and says, well, God can't be working outside of here because we have a corner on the truth, right? That's the legalist. The legalist is convinced God works and only works through the rules and regulations and commandments which their system has erected. Well, look how Jesus responds in verse 17 to the Jews when they made known their disapproval of him telling the man to carry his bed. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I'm working. We're going to blow the lid off of your whole system here. They're convinced it's the Sabbath. God could not be working on the Sabbath. Jesus says, my father's working and that's why I'm working. They're convinced that God cannot be working outside their system and Jesus says he certainly is. What's happening here? They see the ultimate value in keeping the regulations of the Sabbath, and Jesus is saying, there's somebody here who needs mercy. There's somebody here who needs compassion. You know what's more important than that rule-keeping? That this person be healed. Considering God's intention for the Sabbath, that makes perfect sense. The Sabbath was given for man. It's a rest for man because we need that rest. And, and it looked forward to the ultimate rest we would have in Jesus. This man then being healed by Christ is a wonderful example of God's intention for something like the Sabbath. Wonderful time to exercise mercy and compassion. Yet, the legalistic Jews couldn't see it. No way. Blinded by their religion. They're convinced that God only worked in accord with their system. Couldn't possibly be at work on the Sabbath because their system prohibited it. They actually had debates as to whether or not God worked on the Sabbath or not. And they would say, well, uh, according to their Mishnah, which says you cannot carry one thing from one place to another place, and they'd say, okay, well, but God rules everything, and so everything is his domain, so technically he can move things without moving things from one domain to another domain because it's all his domain. What does that show you? It's taking law and placing it above God and holding God then to account to a law that's above himself. 
complete wrong-headed thinking. Jesus actively opposed their man-made restrictions, which they rigidly and unlovingly enforced in the name of God. The superstitious man saw God working where he wasn't. The legalistic man failed to see God working where he was. So in the Gospel of Mark, there's a similar encounter where he said to the Jews in addressing their legalism in Mark 7, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? If you're here this morning and you think, you know, I'm reservations about going to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites there. Well, that's true. Hypocrites everywhere. Hypocrites at your work, too, and hypocrites at your school, and hypocrites in your family, and hypocrite in the mirror. Uh, There's hypocrites everywhere. But Jesus has a similar view, doesn't he? He's looking at the religious crowd all around him and says, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it's written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Hypocrisy. You're talking a good game, but where's your heart? In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Come up with our own system, our own rules, our own regulations, and then elevate them and teach them and impose them upon people with the authority of God. We ought to despise legalism. We ought to despise hypocrisy. We ought to despise heartless religion, just as Jesus did. Jesus, the Godhead bodily. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And that's harsh. That is harsh. You got some harsh things to say about the religious crowd, so does Jesus. You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. He then goes on in that passage to give an illustration of how they're doing that. Jesus' point here is that their concept of God was wrong. Their God would actually prioritize the meticulous keeping of the rules of the Sabbath while overlooking a man who was in need of healing. Their God was more preoccupied with a bed being carried than the sharing of the joy of a man who's just been rescued from four decades of pain. Their God was more concerned with rules and regulations and commandments than love and compassion and mercy, and that's not the God of Scripture. So Jesus says to them, God is at work, and he's at work on the outside of your system. It was not work in the pool. Is not at work in their rules. God is at work in and through Jesus. So Jesus presents himself as a locus of God's work on earth. God's power is not divorced from his person. Instead, God's power and his compassion are present, both in their fullness in the person of Jesus. That's where these things come together. God has not made our destiny dependent upon our own ability, but has instead given his Son who gives eternal life freely. God's favor is not experienced outside of relationship with him, but is graciously and fully given to those who are united to him in relationship through Jesus. In the face of superstition and legalism, Jesus came with a message about who God is and how God works, which was a corrective to both. God is a personal God who loves. He's a merciful God who withholds judgment. He's a compassionate God who's sympathetic to our suffering. He is a gracious God who gives far more than we could possibly deserve. He's a relational God who operates in the context of personal, intimate relationship. He's the big-hearted God who hates legalism and hates hypocrisy and hates authoritarianism and hates judgmentalism. And how do we know this? Because we have the earthly ministry of Jesus. And that's exactly what he exemplified. But more controversially, Jesus came with the message that God is the God who sent his Son. He's performing his work of salvation exclusively through Jesus. 
He's adopting men and women into his family only through Jesus. He's extending love and mercy and compassion through Jesus and Jesus alone. For this reason, where the Father works, the Son is working. And where the Son is working, you can be sure the Father is working, even if it doesn't fit into your system. And so Jesus' message that the Father is at work through him and him alone begins to further raise the ire, the ire of the Jews. This whole Sabbath controversy is going to come up again and again, and it's actually going to be one of the accusations that they lodge against him leading to his crucifixion. And so look in verse 18. John says for us, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. I mean, pretty early. We're only in chapter 5. But they're already seeking to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, that's strike number one, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Working on the Sabbath? Well, how, how is it that he could work on the Sabbath? Well, because he's equal with God. Where God's working, I'm working. Where I'm working, God's working. And both of those uh, were not acceptable to the Jews. So in conclusion... At a time when there's rampant confusion, confusion regarding who God is and how he works, both by the superstitious who see God in everything and the legalist who only sees God in their system, Jesus stands as the corrective to both. God is at work in the world through his Son. Through Jesus, God would show his love and forgiveness towards us, towards you. Through Jesus, he would spare us a lifetime of disappointment, by directing our hope away from the superstitions of the world, away from the legalistic religion of the world, and to Jesus. He would spare us a lifetime of religious burden by directing us away from the rigid, strict religious system and to the relationship that we can have with the Father. And so as we close, we're reminded again that all of this that Jesus has done here is just a foretaste. And again, you say, what about everybody else who is there? Now, Jesus healed all sorts of diseases throughout his earthly ministry, much of which is not recorded in the New Testament. But what about everybody else? This is a foretaste of the kingdom to come. The victory which Christ gives us is experienced somewhat now on a spiritual level, but that full and final deliverance from the curse of sin is yet to come. This is a foretaste of the kingdom for which we are all awaiting. right? And so all that deliverance will be ours. The day is coming when he will heal every illness and wipe away every tear and usher us into an eternal kingdom where we will forever be in the presence of our loving, compassionate, merciful, relational God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for Jesus. As we said last week, it's just a privilege to preach Christ, to think about how Jesus was the greatest opponent to the hypocritical legalistic, authoritarian, religious system of his day. Such systems still exist today. There are men and women who are still overburdened by such religious systems, even in the name of Christianity. There are those who are turned off from faith, they're turned off from Christianity because of such religion, just wants to burden people, heartless, compassionless, merciless. We just thank you that we can look to Christ and see that he was not only the opponent, but he's the corrective. So, Lord, we thank you for your mercy through Jesus. We're quick to say, Lord, we, we know that you are holy. We know that you judge sin. We know uh, that that is true. We know that judgment will come in the future for those who are stubbornly opposed to you. But we also recognize that 
in your love, you sent Jesus Christ to bear that sin for us, to bear that penalty for us, to bear that judgment for us. And so, Lord, you are merciful and you're compassionate and you are forgiving. You are long-suffering. You're patient. You're sympathetic to our weaknesses and you've provided everything that we need. You are sympathetic to our inability to even save ourselves. And so, Lord, we recognize you've given us everything that we need in Jesus so that we can be saved from sin and we can have relationship with you, be adopted into your family. So, Lord, we thank you for this. Lord, this morning we pray for those who are here who are not yet Christians. We pray that they'd see their need for Jesus, uh, that through Christ they can have relationship with you. We pray that they'd value Jesus as precious, uh, understanding he's the way and the only way. Pray for those this morning who are not yet Christians who may have bad experience with religion. We pray that you would show them clearly Christ's view of such hypocritical, legalistic religion. Help them to have a proper conception as to who you are. Help them to have a biblical understanding of who you are by looking to Jesus. So I pray that you do a work in their hearts that way. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would advance your will in each of us. Help us to have a proper conception of who you are. Help us to check areas of our lives where maybe we have allowed superstition to creep into our religion. We have uh, maybe have a distorted view as to who you are. Um, so I pray that you would reveal that to us. Clear up our misconceptions as to who you are your character, how you work and where you work, and uh, help us more and more just to have a biblical view of these things. Lord, we thank you for this. We thank you for Jesus, most of all. Help us to love him more. It's in your name that we, it's in his name that we pray. Amen.